Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Well, shalom, everyone. I'd like to welcome you all out to another Tuesday evening from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Central Standard Time. This is Exegeting Galatians, a Messianic Jewish commentary. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi, and I'm a Torah teacher at Congregation Kehilatu Nava in Thornton, Colorado. Let's open with prayer. Avinu Malkinu, our Father, our King, Lord, we are excited about what you are doing for us and in us and through us. Lord, we stop and we want to give thanks to you because you are the creator. You are the one who has um, caused all things to come into being. Lord, we want to recognize that by your very spirit, all things are being upheld. And by the power of your word, uh, all things fit together and are moving towards a direction, towards a goal that you have determined. Lord, you are in control and therefore we can confidently place our trust in you. Lord, we want to thank you for the opportunity to sit and to study the text. We want to recognize that your words are spirit and they are life, and that without them, Lord, we would be lost. And so we seek to to avail ourselves of your truths, of your ways, of your direction in our lives. Lord, we dare not suppose that we can uh, figure out the way in which to walk unless you show us. And for that reason... Ruach HaKodesh, Holy Spirit, reveal to us the meanings of the words. Cause us to uh, know the purpose behind the, 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 uh, um, the instructions of the Lord so that we can uh, be ambassadors, so that we can be um, uh, children of the King, and so that we can demonstrate holiness and righteousness and truth and mercy, so that we can be the hands and the feet of the Messiah, uh, so that people uh, will encounter Yeshua when they encounter us. Yeshua, we thank you for coming and for uh, remaining with us. Lord, you promised that you would never leave us nor forsake us. And indeed, we know that your promises are true. We, Lord, we also, Lord, want to recognize that this week, uh, within a, a few short days at the end of this week, we will be entering into a, a very special season, Chag Pesach, the season of our deliverance, Passover, the season of our freedom. And Lord, we uh, we take this time and we uh, recall the telling of the uh, the uh, the Mitzrayim, the the deliverance from Egypt, and we recall how uh, you delivered our people with a strong and mighty arm, and that you defeated the Pharaoh and you defeated uh, the evil armies. And Lord, you brought us out 
in order to bring us in, and you indeed did so. And then you gave us your precious words of life, your your Ten Commandments. Lord, we thank you that you have chosen us uh, to be a kingdom of priests and a kingdom of, of representatives for you. And so thank you, Lord, for Passover. Thank you for uh, this time that comes around year after year. Thank you for drawing us close to you during this time, for indeed, as the festivals have promised, they are dress rehearsals of messianic redemption. And so in them we see the Messiah. And in these special times we know that you will draw close to us because they are special times on your calendar. Therefore we make them special times on our calendar. And so Lord we look with anticipation for Passover coming up at the end of this week. Lord be with the students tonight as we embark on another study. I pray that you'll continue to... Um, uh, help me to understand so that I can be a, a teacher uh, for this particular topic. And I thank you for the opportunity to sit before the students and teach. Bless each and every one of us, and we'll be careful to give you the, place, uh, the praise in Yeshua's name. Amen. Okay, well, it is 7 o'clock, uh, 7 p.m. on this Tuesday. Let's date stamp this recording. This is um, uh, August 20th. I'm sorry, August 19th, 2016. Actually, it really is August 20th in my part of the world, on my side of the world. But uh, and this is a live internet study for those of you who are joining me by way of the live class tonight. Um, I'm so pleased to have you come out and join me week after week. We meet for an hour each week from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Central Standard Time. And if you are listening to this recording after the fact and you're not with me in the live class, well, then I certainly invite you to come out. Go to my website at www.tetzetorah.com. Click along the very top. Uh, in the menu section, there should be a link for Galatians commentary. Just click on that link. And then scroll down through the page, and there'll be some information about the live Galatians study, live Internet study that we do week by week. Also, um, you can uh, access the entire written commentary right there on my webpage. Uh, it's currently parked at about 180-something pages. I can't remember, 183 and 85, something like that. And um, uh, if you'd like to uh, view or print the entire uh, commentary, you're certainly welcome to do so. Otherwise, what we do is we just take a chunk every week. We uh, just go section by section, paragraph by paragraph, and stop and read, and then we kind of explain and dialogue about what's going on in the uh, commentary. And my goal is to just kind of take it slow, week by week. I'm in no particular hurry to finish, finish through the commentary. I, if you will allow me to just uh, take it slow, I, I think that's the, a better way to teach, um, rather than rushing it. Um, my goal is to... Uh, um, my goal is is um, comprehension and uh, thoroughness. My goal is not to rush it. Um, but uh, since we're adults and sometimes we need to bite things off in chunks, what I've done is I've broken the study down into um, 10-week semesters. So we meet for 10 weeks, and then we take a break for two weeks, and then we start again with a 10-week semester. And that way we just uh, cover the material in 10-week chunks. So that being said... Um, let's see, we are in week 23, and for those of you who are enrolled students, enrollment is free, by the way, for those of you who are not enrolled, for those of you who are enrolled, um, I send you an email uh, a few days before the study, 
and the um, notes are at the bottom of the uh, email. So uh, if you want to work from the notes, you're certainly welcome to. Otherwise, you can just follow along with me in the live class because I've got the uh, screen pulled up and you can see that I've got uh, the notes right there in front of you as well. So let's start with liturgy. I like to start each class with a reading from the Tanakh or the Torah, the Old Testament, and I read the Hebrew as well as the English, and then I will jump over into the uh, Apostolic Scriptures, um, the uh, New Testament, and read uh, a selection there out of English and Greek. And so let's uh, let's go there right now. Give me a moment. Let me just stop and check these mic levels. Test one, two, three. Test. Okay, everything looks good. Okay, let's go ahead and get started with uh, some liturgy. I'm going to read Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6. This is the liturgy I've been using for this entire time that we've been in the section that we've been on. And um, the reason I chose this liturgy, in my, in my opinion, it's, it's self-apparent as to why I chose the liturgy. But uh, I'll read it, and then I'll explain why I read the liturgy, okay? This time I'm actually going to just read the ESV uh, rather than reading what you're seeing on the screen, which is the wooden... Uh, interlinear version. It's a little difficult to kind of follow along the English when I'm reading the interlinear. So I'm I'm just going to read the um, I'll read the uh, uh, the ESV and then I'll go back and read the Hebrew and then I'll go verse by verse like that. Okay, let's read verse twenty. When your son of this is Deuteronomy six twenty. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you ki yishalcha vinka mahar lemor ma haidot vahahukim vahamishpatim atsheretzi va adonai elohenu et chem next verse verse 21 then you shall say to your son we were we were pharaoh's slaves in egypt and the lord brought us out of egypt with a mighty hand vaamarta levinka Avadim Hayinu Lefaro Bemitraim Vyotsienu Adonai Memitraim Biyad Chazaka And the next verse, verse twenty two. And the Lord showed us signs I'm sorry, and the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And the Hebrew reads Vayitain Adonai Otot Umuftim Gudolim Vraim, Bamitraim, Bafaro, Uhol Beto, Leenenu. And the next verse, verse 23. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Hebrew says, Va Otanu Hotsi Misham, Lemaan Havi, Otanu Latet Lanu et Haarts Asher Nishba La Avotenu. And verse 24, And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we, uh, as we are this day. And the Hebrew says, Vayitzavenu Adonai la'asot et kol hachukin ha'ele la yira et Adonai Eloheinu latov lanu kol hayamim and the final verse, verse 25. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God 
as he has commanded us. And the Hebrew reads, Utzedakah tiheh lanu ki nishmor laasot et kol hamitzvah hazot lifnei Adonai Elohinu ka'asheter tzivanu. Amen. Now, we've discussed this in the past, but for people who are listening to the commentary, this recording for the very first time, the reason I chose this comment, uh, this particular verse, this time is uh, threefold. One, I, re- I read this verse because of the common Christian teaching that the, 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 um, the Torah itself does not offer righteousness for the um, people who are keeping the Torah. And I can understand that what people are usually trying to say, what Christianity is trying to teach when they say that the Torah doesn't offer righteousness, is what they mean is that the Torah doesn't offer salvation-based righteousness. We say salvific righteousness. Or we could we could describe it as positional righteousness or forensic righteousness. In other words, the type of righteousness that is credited to one's account towards salvation. And uh, if that is the type of righteousness that Christianity is claiming that the Torah does not offer, well, then I, uh, I understand that if you simply avail yourself of Torah obedience, then God will not reward you with that type of righteousness. Salvation righteousness is not the goal of the Torah. However, there is a righteousness that is offered by the Torah, and we just read it right here in Deuteronomy 6.25. Moses says, and it will be righteousness for us. Righteousness in the Torah is the, the type of righteousness that is offered by the Torah is the type of right living that God recognizes. It is the right lifestyle according to God's standards. It is what I call doing the right thing in God's eyes, as in contradistinction to the nations who are devoid of God's ways and God's words and the revelation that is offered by the Torah. The nations walk in darkness, and therefore they have no revelation. They have no understanding of of what it is the right thing to do. And, And because of that reason... They commit all manner of gross uh, immorality and and sin and violence, and they end up um, judging themselves, bringing judgment down upon themselves because God's words, God's standards of righteousness, even though these the, the nations are not aware of these things, they still are responsible for them to an extent because God has put... A, um, a general amount of revelation within them, even though it's not within written form, it's still within their conscience. It's it's written on their, it's written on their minds, and and we know this is true because uh, Romans chapter one, uh, Paul tells us that this is the case that no one is without excuse. And when judgment day comes, there will be a measured amount of right living of right. I'm sorry, a, a measured amount of of the right thing to do that everyone should have been aware of. However, Israel has been privileged to be called out from among the nations and brought into a unique relationship with God, not so that they can keep this special revelation for themselves, but quite the opposite, so that they can showcase this revelation to the rest of the world. So it was Israel's responsibility to share the re- the revelation of the right thing, of the righteousness that is found in the Torah. It was Israel's responsibility to share that with the rest of the world. Now, did they uh, did they keep their uh, end of the bargain? Mm, I'm afraid that history records that Israel didn't quite live up to their end of the bargain. Uh, they failed quite miserably. Nevertheless, that's one of the reasons why I'm reading this passage, is because I want Christians to be aware that there is a righteousness that's described by the Torah, and it is, it is basically 
um, behavioral righteousness. And if you follow after the Torah, whether you're Jewish or Gentile, if you do what the Torah asks of you, then God will will um, God will recognize that you are doing the right thing, and therefore reward will follow righteousness. It will follow obedience. So that's one of the reasons why I read it. The other reason, remember, I said there are three. A second reason that I read this is because um, in verse 20, Moses actually uh, challenges the leaders that were listening that day. He says, when your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? And then you explain to him that we came out of Egypt and that these will be our righteousness. Uh, in other words, I've often heard people will say, well, why was the Torah given? And we're going to talk about that question. Why did God give the law? Um, one of the questions that comes up quite often in Christianity is, why did God give the law? And quite often, I don't, don't hear an answer that's related to this particular passage. I hear answers such as, well, God gave the law to be a millstone around Israel's neck, to weigh them down um, excessively until they cried uncle, basically, and, and gave up and, and, and ran into the arms of Yeshua, their Messiah. Um, I don't see that really in the scriptures. Or I hear that God gave the law so that man would be uh, ever aware of his sin and that he would um, uh, understand how excessively sinful he is. Um, part of that's in the law. We're talking about the three uses of the law. Uh, um, I think it's Calvin's three uses of the law. But nevertheless, that is one of the functions of the law. But the point I'm trying to make is that um, Moses, Moshe, in this passage gives us one of the reasons. Because he says, what is the meaning? What are the meanings of the law? And the meaning points over to verse 25, where it says, they will be righteousness for us. So that was one of the second reasons why I read this particular passage. And then, um, given the proximity to Pesach uh, this week, the third reason why I read this passage is because it is a mini-telling of the Passover. Is it not? During the Pesach um, Seder, during the Passover Seder, during the, uh, that dinner, um, we sit around and we read from the uh, the Haggadah, or the Haggadah, however you want to call it. And uh, what do we do? We read about the exodus from Egypt. And in fact, um, according to Halakha, Jewish law, or Jewish, uh, Jewish tradition, we should be reading the story of the deliverance from Egypt. And so, if you noticed, it was right here in our passage. Um, right here in these short six verses, we've got a miniature... Seder going on, right? I've got a miniature Haggadah going on, a miniature telling of the story the, of the deliverance, what I what I called in uh, Hebrew the Yitziat Mitzrayim, the deliverance from Egypt. So that was the third reason why I just read this passage. That being said, um, for those of you who are in the live class, let's just jump over to our New Testament passage, our apostolic scriptures. Let me give me a second to pull it up in the uh, and the ESV here as well. Uh, let's see. We're going to go to Galatians chapter 5. And um, we're going to read the first uh, six verses, I believe. Galatians 5, 1 through 6. And I'll do the same thing that I did with Hebrew. I'll just read uh, the English ESV. And then I'll go back and read the corresponding Greek this time. Okay? So let's go. Galatians 5, 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Te eleutheria, hemas Christos, eleutherosen, stekete un kai me palen zugo duleas in a keste. Verse 2. Look, 
I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Ide, ego, palas, lego, humanhati in pertemnesta. Christos, humas, uden, o phalase. Verse 3, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. Let's read the Greek of that. It reads, Marturomai de palin panti anthropo peritemnameno hati ophelates estin holland ton naman poiesai. And verse 4. Uh, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. And the Greek reads, Katergeta apo Christu hoitenis in namo tika uste tes charitas exabasate. And verse 5. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. The Greek reads, Hemes garpenumati epistios elpida dikaiosunes apectekomitha. And verse 6, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. And the Greek reads, En gar Christo Jesu ute peritome, ti iscue ute acrobustia, ala pistis di agapes in ergumene. Okay, and that'll be the end of our Greek reading our uh, liturgy from the Greek. And the reason I read this particular passage, as I've mentioned in previous um, uh, sessions, the reason I read this passage is because in verse 4, Paul uh, warns the Galatians that you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. And if I pull up the Greek here again in verse 4, you are severed from Christ, katergete apo Christo, Whoever in law, hoitinus in namo, dikaiuste, are being justified. This phrase, uh, dikaiuste, are being justified, um, as we've spoken about in previous classes. This phrase, uh, dikaiuste, is rooted in the um, one of the common um, terms that were used in Paul's day in, in the courtrooms, in the legal courts. And uh, I think the root word is uh, dikai, dikai itself, the first uh, D-I-K-A-I, Dikai, the first few letters of that phrase. And um, this particular word is essentially an acquittal from a courtroom perspective. It is, it is when the judge declares the otherwise condemned um, person, uh, he declares them to be free of guilt. And so we can easily understand how Paul would bring this word into his writings because in Paul's mind... The courtroom in view is God's heavenly courtroom. And therefore, the guilty person on trial is me, is you. It's all of us. All of us who are to be tried by the um, bar of God's courtroom when it comes to whether or not we are going to be found righteous, or that is to say, dekai, whether we're going to be justified in God's sight or not. And remember... There's only one way to be justified in God's sight, and we already know it. This is, of course, Christianity 101. The only way to be justified in God's sight is to be found in Messiah. 
And so that's why Paul's bringing this term into his uh, teachings. It's because he's explaining to the Galatians that if they want to be found righteous in God, if they want to be justified in God's sight, then they need to be found in Christ and in Christ alone. They, they must find and they must root their faith in the object of faith, the only true object of faith, which is Yeshua the Messiah. And yet, the warning here is that these Galatian Gentiles were entertaining the notion of trying to be justified by another mean, by another means. And that other means was described by Paul as circumcision or keeping the law. And the, and, um, the reason I brought it into, this, uh, uh, into my liturgy is because um, uh, Paul says, You're severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. Um, and in, in the passage that I've got pulled up on my screen, you are severed from Christ, whoever in law, namo dikaiuste. Um, I, let me just read the whole phrase. Whoever in law are being justified, hotinus in namo dikaiuste. If you're trying to bring law in as the measure of your justification, Paul is explaining to you that you're going to break away from Christ's uh, justification. You're going to sever yourself, katirgeta, uh, very strong language there, being severed. I think it's a verb, a word that was used, a verb that was used when cutting limbs from animals, uh, you know, severing, separating completely, cutting limb from limb. You, that would, thus, we get our English word sever, severed, which is a kind of a severe. You're breaking away from Christ, Paul's warning them, if you're finding, trying to find your justification in the law. And um, the way it's linked to the Deuteronomy passage I just read is because... Um, for those of you who are in the class, I'm just going to jump back over to the Deuteronomy passage for a moment. In um, in the Deuteronomy passage, let me pull up the pointer. This word right here, and our righteousness, the root word uh, for utzedaka, uh, the, the phrase, the root word is uh, tzadik. And in the Hebrew, tzadik corresponds to the Greek dekai. So they are the same word, just in two different languages. So in the Hebrew, we have uh, tzaddik or tzedakah, and in the um, Greek we have. Let me jump back over. In the Greek we have this phrase uh, dikaiuste, or the first few letters dikai is the root word. Dikaiao would be the verb. So that's the point I'm trying to make. And so suddenly we have Moshe essentially saying it will be righteousness for you if I could. Um, translate it that way. It will be righteousness for you. It will be justification for you if you observe all these commandments. And yet then Paul comes along and says, you are severed from Christ, whoever in law are trying to be justified or found righteous. Well, what gives? Is Paul trying to disagree with Moshe? Is Moshe saying that righteousness is offered through keeping the law? And yet Paul saying, if you try to keep the law for for the purpose of righteousness, that you'll be severed from Christ. Is that what the two verses are saying? This is a common um, a common viewpoint in Christian circles, and that's the reason why I bring this liturgy into my discussion uh, for our study. It's because I have found that a better way to reconcile the two verses is to understand that with from the from God's vantage point, there are two levels. To righteousness, there are two levels to justification, not two different standards. Don't misunderstand me. There's only one standard of righteousness in God's perspective, but there are two aspects of it. There are two levels of it, and so, or as I've been using the metaphor, I've been using is there are two sides to one coin, 
And from so from God's perspective, there is the what we might call the earthly, fleshly, temporal righteousness or behavioral righteousness is what I've been using. And then the other side of the coin describes the um, eternal slash uh, spiritual slash um, uh, internal often. Um, but to be sure, we, we, we would say it's the positional slash uh, forensic righteousness. And God actually envisions both of these aspects uh, being available and uh, being walked out and being owned, as it were, by his children. God wants us to be both. He wants us to be behaviorally righteous and he wants us to be forensically righteous. In other words, he wants those people who are saved to actually walk in a manner worthy of their salvation. And indeed, by the power of the Spirit, that's what we will do. Because that's how God designed his words to work within us, right? So we have to remind ourselves that um, if we are genuinely saved, then we will genuinely walk out a life of, of salvation. We will genuinely do the right thing. And here's the point I'm trying to make to my traditional Christian friends who are, say, shy of walking into um, the Torah of Moshe. If you're saved, then it's the Spirit's desire that you would actually walk into the Torah. And I can show you that straight from the Torah. I can show you straight. I can show you that straight from the prophets. But that's the point I'm trying to make in bringing up these two um, passages. So I hope that's been an, uh, a helpful peek at trying to reconcile what, for many people in traditional Christianity, scratch their heads and can't figure out. Is Paul uprooting Torah when he says that we're going to be severed from Christ if we're trying to keep the law? If we're trying to bring our righteousness in from a law perspective, is, is that what Paul's trying to say? And I'm here to tell you that, no, Paul wouldn't have anything to, to negative, per se, to, to say about Torah obedience. Unless you're trying to keep the Torah to be saved, then Paul's going to slap you on the hand, or slap you upside the head, whichever. But he's going to tell you, no, 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 you cannot keep the Torah for salvific purposes. The Torah is not a salvific document. You can't keep the law in order to be saved. So with that, let's turn to our study. Uh, we are in um, Section 3, Works of Law, Part 1, Proselyte Conversion, Understanding the Background. And we have been parked in this section for probably, uh, I, 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 you know, considering the, um, uh, considering the semester breaks and how I take this just a few paragraphs at a time, I think we've been parked in this section for probably about two months. And I'm okay with that if you're okay with that. We've just kind of been working our way slowly because this, in my opinion, is one of the central pillars of Paul's theology in the book of Galatians. And um, uh, what we have been describing in this section is that Paul uses this phrase, <clears throat> Paul uses this phrase, works of law, which uh, the Greek is ergo namu. And um, the way that Paul uses it in the book of Galatians, and we know he uses it about, if I'm correct, just off the top of my head, I think he used it about four or five times in Galatians and about two or three more times in the book of Romans. So with a total, I think he uses it eight times in his letters. So about six times in Galatians, about two times in Romans, something like that, um, roughly speaking. But the way that Paul uses this phrase in his letters, we know that it refers to um, at least one or two concepts. And cr traditional Christianity interprets this phrase works of law as essentially works done in obedience to the law, basically keeping the Torah. So uh, if you're a Christian today and you've ever observed your average Jewish, religious Jewish person going through the motions of 
keeping the Sabbath, keeping kosher, walking into the festivals, wearing tzitzit, um, putting a mezuzah on their door. Some of the more uh, uh, popular, more visible signs of, of keeping the Torah. Well then, for, the, for your average Christian, what what they would describe if they were to describe what they're seeing they would say well that looks like the works of the law to me it looks like the jewish person is working to keep the law so to say and so within traditional christian um views of this phrase works of the law what i have found is that your average uh, theologian will interpret paul's phrase works of the law as keeping the law first of all and then from that interpretation of works of the law as meaning keeping the law, your average uh, Bible reader will launch from that interpretation into an application of Paul's theology and Paul's warnings in the book of Galatians and indeed in the book of Romans, where Paul warns people away from the dangers of the works of the law. And because your average Bible reader has already interpreted works of the law as works done in obedience to the law, or um, works done in an effort to try and uh, uh, become saved for whatever reason, in other words, the, your average Christian tries to fill in the motive for the Jewish uh, people's keeping of the law. And because Paul is warning us away from the dangers of the works of the law, remember uh, Galatians 2.16 uh, warns us that um, it's not by works of the law that that we're saved, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And we're going to talk about that verse uh, starting next week. But essentially, um, your average Christian sees Paul discouraging anyone from trying to keep the law, not only for meritorious purposes that equate to salvation, but in a word, from trying to keep the law at all. Am I right? Isn't that essentially what traditional Christianity has inherited as not only their interpretation but application of this phrase, works of the law? And so what I find is that, that this particular interpretation and application of the phrase works of the law, I find that to be in disagreement with the promises that are actually given to Israel, for instance, not only in the Torah but are also handed down through the prophets particularly in passages like Jeremiah and Ezekiel, where God promises that to Israel one day he would take out the heart of stone from within them and replace it with a heart of flesh. And in doing so, he would fill them with his spirit. And in doing so, he would cause them to walk into his commandments. Now, how can that theology be true if Paul is telling us that that by faith in Christ, we leave the law behind and that we no longer need to concern ourselves with keeping the commandments for any reason at all. Do you see the challenge here in my position? So I have decided that the position that Christianity takes is unworkable. I, I use the phrase untenable. It's, it's, it's a position that can't possibly be what Paul was meaning because there are too many problems with that interpretation and indeed with that application, particularly for uh, Torah-observant Israel. So uh, if we are interpreting Paul's phrase, works of the law, as mere commandment-keeping, I think we're going to run into some problems. Also, we're going to find historically that the Jewish people of Paul's day were not hoping that their Torah observance would lead to salvation. It wasn't quite that simple. 
What we have found instead from history, and this is where we're getting into the context of the background of this phrase, works of the law, and this is why we spent two months on this particular phrase, and where we're going to spend probably another month um, exegeting Galatians 6, uh, 2.16 alone. In our next section, section 4, is actually, um, we're going to uh, unpack Galatians 2.16 by itself. We're going to use a test case where we take our understanding of works of law from part 3 and apply it to part 4. But what I found is, historically, the Jewish people didn't actually, um, they didn't actually simplistically believe that if they kept the Torah like some sort of grocery list of do's and don'ts, that God would actually reward them with salvation or righteousness. And you have to remember, um, from Paul's perspective and from his uh, vantage point in the first century, the Jewish people interacted with the phrase righteousness, remember the Greek word dekai, or the Hebrew word uh, uh, tzedakah, they interacted with the concept of righteousness, that two-sided coin, they interacted with both sides simultaneously. They didn't neatly divide them the way we do in, say, systematic theology today, where we can kind of tell people, well, I'm saved on the inside, but sometimes it doesn't look that way on the outside. In the Hebraic, in the Hebraic mindset, to be saved was, in fact, to walk saved. To, to be counted as righteous was, in fact, to walk as a righteous person. So um, there was no such uh, uh, there was no such uh, separation between the person who was declared righteous by God and a person who didn't also um, subsequently walk righteous before God. The two worked together, and in fact, uh, to use the theology behind James, if there was an absence of righteous walking in one's life, then it was proof perhaps, that one was not truly declared righteous in God's sight. Or to use the phrase that's famous in James, you show me your work, you show me your uh, faith by your, you show me your faith without works, I'll show you my faith by my works. Uh, to paraphrase what James told us. So the point I'm trying to make is that righteousness will always result in righteous living. And so um, God designed it that way, and so I can be confident that if God has declared me as righteous in Messiah, then righteous works will follow after me. They will be the vindication. They will be the proof of an inner reality, the outward manifestation of walking and doing the right thing, walking according to Torah, will always, always be uh, the result of having true righteousness from the inner perspective, from the uh, salvific level from the positional perspective. So we've got this background to works of the law that we need to contend with when we're studying the book of Galatians. We must keep reminding ourselves that from Paul's perspective, righteousness is both behavioral and forensic. It's not either or, it's both and. There's no um, dichotomy between the two levels or aspects of righteousness in Paul's mind. The two work together. They work in tandem. They are one coin with two sides. And you can't, can't erase either one of those sides. So when Paul's talking about righteousness, he has both in view, even though he might be um, focusing his attention on one of the sides, but he, he it's, not, it's never to the exclusion of the other side is the point I'm trying to make. And so with that background, when the Jewish people of Paul's day interacted with the Torah, they did so not only with the hope of being behaviorally righteous like Moshe described in Deuteronomy 6.25, 
they didn't only keep Torah because they knew that God would 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 recognize their right lifestyle as the right thing to do in his sight, and then therefore he would be pleased. They did so with the hopes that it would also be reckoned to their account as an eternal righteousness, the type of righteousness that would carry them into what we call the ulam haba, the age to come. Or in Christian knees, we would simply say heaven. So there was this expectation that that their relationship to Torah uh, 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 drew the, the uh, forensic righteousness of God into their lives. But there's an ingredient that that Christianity often misses. And here is that vital ingredient, in my opinion, that helps to unlock the, the, uh, the, 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 the more accurate historical understanding behind the book of Galatians. This is the ingredient. The Jewish people of Paul's day, and indeed the Jewish people of the day, still hold primary to this view, but the Jewish people of Paul's day interacted with the Torah on a social level. And what I mean by that is the Torah itself, from their perspective, was an exclusively Jewish phenomenon. It was an exclusively Jewish privilege. It was a Jewish heritage. It was an exclusively Jewish heritage. It was a limited uh, view of Torah in that sense. So within their worldview, because the Torah was the, the sole possession of Jewish Israel, anyone wishing to seek to be found both behaviorally and positionally righteous from God's perspective must first find themselves a member of Jewish Israel. This is the vital ingredient that I hear, that I don't hear in Christian um, explanations of the book of Romans. I'm sorry, the book of Galatians. Well, Romans as well, but primarily the book of Galatians. Mostly, when I read through the commentaries uh, that I can find in your average Christian bookstore or that I can you can pick up online, most Christian commentaries to the book of Galatians um, supposedly, or um, most, Christ, most Christian commentaries have Gentile Christians in the book of Galatians supposedly trying to keep Torah for the purpose of becoming saved without really trying to become Jewish first. So uh, it seems like your average Christian commentary doesn't bring in what we call the social function of the law. And therefore, in their eyes, works of the law doesn't really include the Jewish ethnicity element. Instead, it simply stone-cold commandment-keeping, which is uh, tantamount to legalism in their eyes. And indeed, it really is a legalistic perversion of Torah to try and keep it to be, to be saved. We know for sure that no one can keep the Torah to become saved. Uh, there are manifold problems with that, um, that particular line of reasoning. But the point I'm trying to make is that if your traditional Christian commentary is only supposing that the Gentile Christians in Paul's letter are hoping that their, their Torah obedience will lead to salvation, and the Christian commentaries don't, in fact, bring in the, the, the ethnocentric Jewish element, the, the, the uh, Torah is for Jews only aspect to it, then they're going to miss out on the the the, um, the historical uh, importance of Paul's argument behind works of the law and, and things like that. And so that is where I have been stressing, um, focusing most of my energies in this particular section called works of law, proselyte conversion, understanding the background. So I think we can start reading, and guess what? Good news. We've only got four paragraphs left to section number three. So guess what? We're going to finish section three tonight. 
and we will be poised to move into it next, move into section four next week. So with that background, with the background, I can start reading. We're on the top of page 30 if you're actually following along through the commentary in the written form. And if you're in the classroom tonight, you can see that I've got the page pulled up for you. With this background of circumcision and proselyte conversion for Gentiles in mind, we're now better poised to uncover the true meaning of phrases such as works of the law and under the law. And here again, I explain why I have been stressing. In fact, I've been overly stressing it, really. If you've been listening to my commentary, you've been following along for these last 22 sessions. Uh, remember, we're in week 23 now. If you've been following along, then you'll know that we've been parked on this concept for the last, like I said, about two months. Works of the law in Paul, I believe it's vital to understand it similar to this. Perhaps my theology might be a little bit off. Perhaps I need a little bit more sharpening. But I think we've got to at least give credit where credit's due to the the newer perspective, the renewed perspective in Paul that has been um, shedding light on these uh, phrases that Paul uses and the topics that Paul brings into his commentaries, into his letters. Works of the law, I maintain, this phrase uh, simply uh, cannot simply mean, quote, deeds done in accordance with Torah commands if we were to give the surviving Jewish documents of the first century their proper place among scholarly research. But even more important is the fact that um, if we interpret works of the law as Torah observance, then we end up with Paul discouraging Gentiles, and by inclusion Messianic Jews as well, from keeping the commandments of God. And that's a position I believe is untenable, given Paul's positive views of Torah observance spelled out elsewhere in his letters. Do you understand what I'm saying? So, let me just pause and let the, the, the weight of that sink in. We essentially have the, the bulk of the corpus of the five books of Moshe, where Moses is, is stressing to Israel, Keep God's laws. Keep God's commandments. Walk into his statutes. Walk into his precepts. Make these words a part of your everyday lifestyle. Or as we read in the, in the uh, Shema, these words which I'm commanding you today shall be upon your heart. Right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Right? So Moshe is enjoining Israel to keep the ways of God, to keep the laws of God, to keep the commandments of God. And Moshe says it will be your well-being. And we read in Deuteronomy here that it will be your righteousness. So keep God's ways. Do it. Like the Nike slogan says, just do it. Right? When it comes to the Torah, just do it. However, suddenly we've got um, traditional uh, Christian theology and I'm, I'm, it seems like I pick on Christians a lot, but um, let's be honest, folks. You're not going to find a lot of Jewish commentaries on the book of Galatians, at least traditional Jewish commentaries, right? I don't find your average Chabadnik or um, Orthodox Jew cons even concerning himself with the commentary to the book of Galatians, um, with a com such a commentary. He doesn't, care, he doesn't particularly care about the New Testament. So I've got to single out Christians because those are the, those are the type of commentaries you're going to find in the Christian bookstores, right? So... Uh, be easy on me. But the point I'm trying to make is, if your traditional Christian commentary is teaching that Paul is trying to uproot the Torah, well then, we've got Paul and Moshe arguing with one another. We've got Moshe saying, keep it. We've got Paul saying, don't keep it. We've got Moshe saying, uh, write it on your hearts, put it on your minds, um, love God with all your hearts, these words that I'm commanded today shall be upon your heart. And then we have Paul saying, no, 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 run away from it, run away from it, it's done away with. 
So we've, with, with, with that type of uh, discontinuity going on in the Bible, it's no wonder that the skeptics of today, the people who, who scoff at the Bible, it's no wonder that they, they think that the Bible is full of nonsense, particularly because we have the latter half of the book uprooting or disproving the first half of the book, right? We've got to actually work, in my opinion, with a hermeneutic that seeks continuity. And the, the way we can put the two together, the way we can put Moses together with Paul, is to understand that both are telling the truth. Both of them are, are being led by the Spirit of God. Both of them, both of their words are trustable and are, are, are um, um, reliable. And therefore, Moshe doesn't disagree with Paul, and Paul doesn't dis- disagree with Moshe. Instead, Shaul and Moshe both have the same message. And that message is this. Cast your faith on the Son of God, and God will fill you with His Spirit and cause you to walk into the words of God. So, the Son of God will cause you to walk into the words of God. And so, it's that simple. It's that simple. The Spirit of God will lead you into a Torah-obedient lifestyle. And Moshe would certainly agree with that, and Shaul would also most definitely agree with that. So, that's why I said what I said. I believe it's untenable. Uh, to to have Paul to have Shaul saying that um, uh, that he's discouraging Gentiles from keeping the Torah. Let's keep reading. As convenient as it is to simply interpret works of the law, every place we find this phrase in Paul, as if Paul were discouraging works done in obedience to the law, I find this hermeneutic to be unfair. Uh, Given the context, uh, let me start that. Let me try that again. I find this hermeneutic to be unfair to the context of Paul's writings and to the scriptures as a whole. The context of Paul's use of the phrase "works of the law" likely describes, and this is what I've been going at for the last seven weeks, or the last two months, or uh, however long we've been on this particular section. The context of Paul's use of the phrase "works of the law" likely describes Jewish people hoping to maintain right standing as Jewish covenant members with God by keeping the commandments of the law. But it might just as well be describing Gentiles wishing to gain covenant membership into the community of Israel by taking on Jewish status, viz. circumcision. In other words, read here is Jewish identity. And then likewise maintaining membership status by keeping the commandments imposed upon them as proselytes. In other words, circumcision plus works of law working in tandem like two sides of the same coin to confer a status of righteous that unfortunately we know was not acceptable to God. But in their self-definition in the first century, in their self-understanding, that coin was vital and both sides of it were vital. So from the Jewish perspective in the first century, those of those uh, in Israel who were born with Jewish identity, they were born with the first side of the coin. All they had to do was, by self-effort, begin to walk into the Torah and begin to maintain, as it were, their covenant membership. In other words, they kept themselves in the covenant by their own, by the power of their own flesh, by the power of their own covenant. By, I'm sorry, by the power of their own commandment keeping. Which that's going to be the problem in Paul. Paul's going to say, "No, that's not how you stay in the covenant." So, from the uh, Jewish perspective, you were born in the covenant, and all you had to do was just. Um, Basically, maintain your position in the group by keeping yourself away from penchant idolatry, by keeping your way from uh, yourself away from anything that would get you cut off or cut or uh, what do we say excommunicated from the group. 
and that's where the second side of the coin comes in. That's where the uh, that's the uh, the maintenance of Torah. So so for the Gentile who wasn't born with that ethnicity, they had to actually do both sides by their power, by their own power. They had to both they had to a for take the first step in becoming a Jew, thus proselyte conversion. They had to convert to legal Jewish status, take that on. So they had to create the first side of the coin. Uh, and then once they had that first side side of the coin in place, then they could begin to do the second side the same way their um, native-born Jewish uh, uh, co-members were doing. In other words, they just kept the same Torah that the Jews were keeping. Because remember, the theology of the Jews in Paul's day was that the Torah was a Jewish-only document. Gentiles were forbidden from keeping the Torah because they weren't Jewish. So the traditional Christian view of Galatians is that where Gentiles are trying to keep Torah for the purpose of salvation incorrectly assumes that Gentiles could even be allowed to keep the Torah in the first century to begin with. You see my point? Your traditional Christian exegesis of the book of Galatians misses the important historical fact that Gentiles were forbidden from keeping Torah at all. Maybe little parts of it as they were interested in uh, attending the synagogue, and you know they were they would show up on the Sabbath day, and and uh, you know maybe some of the uh, uh, initial pieces of Torah, some of the more harmless parts of Torah were were given to them as kind of teasers or spoon fed to them or um, what do we say initiates. Uh, but the, the the goal in the first century from the Jewish perspective was to bring a Gentile into Jewish Israel. In other words. When the Gentiles were visiting the synagogues in the book of Acts that we read about, you know, Greeks were in the synagogues whenever Paul and and Barnabas went, and Paul and Silas were preaching in the synagogues, they often found Greeks that were also always present along with the Jews. Well, stop and ask yourself, why were those Greeks there? Well, they were attracted to the monotheistic uh, lifestyle of the uh, Jewish people. They were attracted to Israel's covenants. They were attracted to the blessings of the Jewish people. They were attracted to the um, the festivals. They were attracted to the commandments. There were any number of reasons why they were in the synagogues with the Jews. But the point I'm trying to make is that from the Jewish perspective, these Gentiles that were in their synagogues were essentially just proselytes, were essentially just Gentiles on their way to becoming Jews. It's, it's, it's basically that position. Uh, the, the Jews were basically hoping to swell their Jewish membership by bringing Gentiles in. So they welcomed Gentiles in the synagogue. Hey, no problem, come on in. Uh, see what we've got to offer. It was kind of like a salesman's approach. Come into my store, take a look around, we'll even let you sample the perfume. And if you like it, then we hope you'll buy it. That type of thing. We'll even let you sample the cookies. So uh, in my little analogy here, the salesman is the Jewish synagogue and the Jewish teachers and Jewish uh, members of the synagogue, and the uh, the the uh, the customer in my little analogy coming into the store. The store is the synagogue, and the customer is the Gentile. And the sample, the thing that they're sampling, are little bits of the Torah. But by and large, the hermeneutic that we we probably want to work from is that historically speaking, Gentiles were forbidden from keeping the Torah as a people group because of the um, notion that the Torah was a Jewish only document. So. Let's keep reading in my commentary. Um, since Paul's letter to the Galatians is primarily directed towards his Gentile readership, 
I tend to work from the understanding that the phrase, quote, works of the law, end quote, is Paul's way of speaking against the hopelessness of Gentile proselyte conversion to Judaism, <clears throat> excuse me, for supposed covenant membership into Israel, and thus achieving the status of, quote, unquote, right, excuse me, righteous before God, that the works of the law supposedly offered. And that phrase righteous there is our Greek, dikai, and our Hebrew, um, tzedakah. Let's keep reading. We're almost done. We're at the bottom of page 30. Surely Paul must have been knowledgeable about the motives behind those seeking self-justification for the ostensible sake of covenant membership, right? Paul must have known somehow uh, some of the motives behind their keeping Torah. And here, let me explain why. After all, works done in obedience to the law that are motivated by a genuine love for God and man cannot be what Paul is discouraging, right? And there's a little typo there, should say is, between the word Paul and discouraging. That's not what Paul's discouraging, right? Remember, Paul actually affirmed, quote, what matters is keeping the commandments. And I've got a quote there from uh, 1 Corinthians 7.19, which just so happens, if you're looking at the commentary, is also the footnote to number 18, which I've got fully quoted. Being circumcised means nothing, and being uncircumcised means nothing. But what does mean something is keeping God's commandments, end quote. Stop and remind yourself, isn't circumcision a commandment? Doesn't God command Israel to be circumcised in Genesis 17? Doesn't God command Israel to be circumcised in Leviticus chapter, I think it's chapter, uh, gosh, I always get this wrong. I think it's Leviticus chapter, uh, is it 12? <laughs> Leviticus chapter 9, I think. Somewhere around there, between 8, 9, 10, 11, is where, uh, the, the, um, or maybe it's, maybe it's 5. Gosh. Anyway, Earlier on in the few first few chapters of Leviticus, we have the commandment to circumcise baby boys on the eighth day. And the point I'm trying to make is, circumcision, according to the law of Moses, is a commandment. So how could Paul say being circumcised means nothing, and being uncircumcised means nothing, but what does mean something is keeping God's commandments? That's, that's, that's gobbledygook if you think that circumcision itself is just a commandment. What Paul's really saying is being Jewish means nothing, and being Gentile means nothing, in light of being declared righteous by God. That's what he means, right? He's not saying that Jewishness doesn't matter and that being, Jew that being Gentile doesn't matter. In and of themselves, he's not saying that they don't matter. What he's saying is that when it comes to um, being declared righteous by God, it's not your ethnicity that's going to get your declaration. It's going to um, um, draw the declaration. It's not Jewishness or non-Jewishness that matters in light of being saved. What matters is keeping God's commandments. So that's what Paul means in the verse. So what I'm talking about when I say the motives behind seeking self-justification is this. If you, if you took two people, put them side by side, one of them was a genuine believer and a solid, strong believer in Messiah, and one of them was not. One of them was um, either... Uh, not yet saved, but working their way towards... Um, uh, boy, that sounds bad, doesn't it? I don't mean working their way towards salvation. What I mean is they're on the path towards salvation, meaning they're probably attending church, they're reading their Bible, they're, they're doing things that they know are right things to do, and they're praying that God would ex accept them. Um, but so, so you have two people that look religious, is the point I'm trying to make. right? They both attend church, they both read their Bible, they both... Uh, do right things that you know they both keep Torah even 
but the point is one is saved, one's not. And so we could even have one of those persons um, hoping that their Torah obedience would save them. You know, we meet these people all the time. People who attend church, read their Bible, people who pray, people who tithe, people who take communion, people who do things that they hope will earn them salvation. There are lots of people out there. There are millions, sadly, who are doing righteous things with the hopes that that right lifestyle will be credited to their account as righteousness. In other words, they hope they'll be saved by doing all those right things. And sadly, they are deceived. Sadly, they are deceived. It's not wrong to do the right thing, but the motive is what I'm trying to describe here. And here's the thing, from a third-party perspective, from uh, those, of who, those of us who are kind of observing these two imaginary persons that I'm describing, it's very difficult for us to actually know for certain which one of these persons is really saved and which one's not, right? It's, it's, it's nearly impossible sometimes. I mean, there, a, a, a genuinely saved person eventually will, will manifest their genuine salvation. I believe that's true. That's a whole different sermon. But the point I'm trying to make is from a casual observer's perspective, two people who are keeping Torah fervently, side by side, you can't tell which ones, you can't, you can't know the motive. You can't really know. Even with talking to them, sometimes it's, it's deceptive. Uh, even if they're not trying to be deceptive. So the point I'm trying to make is Paul must have been knowledgeable about the motives behind his Galatian readership. Because when Paul talks about works of the law, he does describe, remember uh, in Galatians uh, 5, 6, he said, you're severed from Christ, I'm sorry, 5, 4, you're severed from Christ, whoever in law are being justified from grace. In other words, we talked about the motive there. Paul is really describing motive. He must know um, that uh, uh, those people who are trying to keep the law for the salvific purpose that they think it, it affords them, he must know, of course the Spirit I think is revealing it to them, he must know that that is the motive behind their keeping of the Torah or their motive behind um, taking on uh, Jewish identity via circumcision and proselyte conversion. Right. So let's keep reading. Remember, um, what matters is keeping the commandments, 1 Corinthians 7.19. To be sure, the Messianic Jews in Acts 21.20 were all quote-unquote zealous for the law, and the believers in Jerusalem seem to find this position acceptable. Remember? That's your homework. Go back and read Acts 21. and Read about those Jews that Paul met when he came back to Jerusalem that the leaders described as zealous for the law. And they were believers. They were believing Jews, and they were zealous for the law. And they are upset about the rumors that they've heard about Paul. And what were those rumors? That Paul is teaching Jewish people not to circumcise their sons and to forsake the customs of Moses. Kind of the same rumor that we have going on in Christian circles today. The law is done away with. The law has been fulfilled by Jesus, and we no longer have to keep it anymore. And these types of rumors are upsetting to people who want to be loyal to the commandments. So, let's keep reading. What is more, Paul himself argues in Romans 2.25 that, quote, circumcision, which read here is Jewish membership in Israel, circumcision was indeed of value if you obey the law. In that particular pericope, in that, in that particular pericope, in that section of, um, of uh, Romans 2.25, in that section of Romans 2, Paul is centering his uh, dialogue 
on Jewish people for a moment. Remember, he starts out, I think, in verse around verse 18 to 17, 17 or 18, where he says, but if you call yourself a Jew, and then from that moment towards the end of the chapter, the Jewish member is in mind. That's why I say circumcision is Jewish membership in Israel right here. Don't want you to get confused. So, for later Christian authors to assert that Paul frowned upon keeping Torah for any reason, no matter the intentions of the individual who is doing the Torah keeping, finds no support from the scriptures. That's the challenge to Christians today. That's the challenge I want to make to my well-meaning, well-loved Christian friends, family members, pastors, co-workers, things like that. Those who are Christians who see people like me, who are Jewish, who are keeping the Torah to the best of my ability and by the power of the Spirit, as I believe the Torah commands me to do so. And yet, then I have Christians who come along and remind me that Paul taught that we don't have to keep the law anymore, or to quote Romans uh, 6, 14, and 15, I believe. Um, we're no longer under law, we're under grace, that type of thing. The, they, many Christians remind me that they don't have to keep the law anymore because um, we're no longer under law, we're under grace. So things like that. And I, I've, got to, I've, I've, I've got to disagree with that theology respectfully. Uh, it just doesn't line up with what we read about in in Jeremiah, in Ezekiel, in in the in all of Moshe, and it, it's not really what Paul is teaching. In fact, it contradicts the words of the Master himself, who said, "I didn't come to do away with the law of the prophets. I came to I didn't come to abolish them." Matthew chapter five verses seventeen through say twenty one. I didn't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Right. So let's keep reading. On the contrary, the Old Testament is replete with the fact that God is in very is in. In, uh, I think there's a typo there, that God is uh, very much pleased with obedience to his law and readily punishes cold-hearted Torah breakers. Right? Just keep this maxim close to your heart. God punishes wickedness. <laughs> right? Read through the Old Testament and you'll figure that out. God punishes wickedness. And what is the definition of wickedness? Well, I think it's safe to say that disobedience to God's ways is defined by God as wickedness. So we don't want to be in that position. I'm not telling. I'm not saying. Don't please don't misunderstand me. I know those of you who are listening to my commentary today, those of you who are reading this commentary. Um, I'm not saying that if you're not keeping the Torah, that you're wicked in God's sight. What I am saying is this. God designed his Torah to be kept by those who are um, identified as his children. And if you call yourself a child of God, then the Torah should be kept. It is yours. It is your heritage. It is your responsibility. It's your covenant right to keep the Torah. God privileged you to keep it. And to be sure, he empowered you by his Holy Spirit to keep it. So why not keep it? Just do it, like the Nike slogan said, right? Just do it. So, I'm not saying that you're wicked. That's between you and the Holy Spirit. You need to work that out. If you find yourself repeatedly sinning, well, then you and the Holy Spirit need to work that out. You need to get that out. And and I'm pretty sure that uh, God frowns upon disobedience, especially knowledgeable disobedience. All right? Different sermon for a different day. Let's conclude our commentary today. Uh, I think we're going to, like I said, I think we're easily going to finish up section three tonight. Final paragraph. So, we conclude then, and there's a typo here again, just take out the word since. We conclude that, we conclude then that Paul must of necessity have been working from the understanding 
that many Jews likely assumed they were already genuine and lasting covenant members in Israel based on God's election and or based on their own Jewish identity gained at birth, and that many Gentiles without these pedigrees were likely seeking some sort of covenant membership into Israel as offered via the proselyte conversion policy enforced in those days. And you can go back and read Acts 15.1 and keep it in mind with Matthew 23.15. Keep those two passages together. And I think you'll see it working itself out there. Okay? And with that, congratulate yourself because we just finished another section. We've only got seven more sections to go and then we turn to a verse-by-verse exposition of this particular book. So, essentially, that's how my commentary breaks down. We've got ten topical sections where we kind of talk around the back, talk about the background uh, features to the book. We talk about um, the topics in the book, and then we just turn to basically a, a verse by verse. I don't cover every verse in the book of Galatians, but I cover most of the ones that form uh, much of the disagreement between Christians and Jews, Christians and Messianics. So. I hope that was helpful for everyone. All right. For those of you who are in the live class, um, I'm going to uh, briefly turn to Romans chapter 3 and finish out my um, dialogue about this particular, my my, uh, exegesis of this. I think this will be fairly easy now that we've got works of law under our belt. You know that in um, Romans, uh, works of the law shows up as well. For instance, uh, Romans 20 right here. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in the sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. That was Romans 3.20. And um, so we're going to read these last uh, few verses, 21 through 31, these, I guess, 10 or 11 verses here. And then I'm going to explain, I believe, the meat. Actually, I read... Uh, verses 21 through 26 last week, and so I'm really ready to start on verse 27, because this is more or less the conclusion to the section on works of law in Romans. Remember, for, uh, in Romans 3.20, where we see this phrase, ergo namu, works of the law, is the first time that it shows up in Romans. And Paul couldn't have... He, I mean, he may have, but I don't think it's likely that he simply pulled this phrase out of thin air and interjected it into a letter and hoped that his Roman readers would understand it. It, it's it's probably not good uh, authorship to introduce a phrase that no one understands and let them assume what it means. No, it's more likely, uh, given the fact that uh, historically Galatians came before Romans, uh, it was, it, the letter to Galatians was prior to Romans, and therefore Paul had already worked out much of his theology behind this phrase, works of law. But more importantly to the point, as we learned in this section, that uh, the phrase works of the law, Ergonamu, already had a, um, a contemporary counterpart in the writings, the extant writings to the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls. Meaning, the, the, some of the Jewish communities in Qumran, the ones who penned the Dead Sea Scrolls, they were already using this phrase works of law, Ergonamu, albeit in the Hebrew, they were re- using Ma'asei HaTorah. And so what we learned, and what we can find and, and assume, strongly assume, is that the phrase works of law was already well known in Paul, at least known from with a, with a measured amount of knowledge enough that the, the, the readers in Romans wouldn't have been lost when Paul introduces it somewhat 
suddenly in this letter here, suddenly meaning from our perspective, uh, this is the first time it shows up in Romans, is right here in chapter 3, verse 20. And then as you keep reading, you'll see that he uses it again down in verse... Um, uh, let's see, but now we'll go with righteousness through faith for all of sin. Uh, gosh, give me a moment here. But then it's accused by a law of works, not by the faith for we hold it one justified. Okay, he uses it again down in verse 28. So for sure, in Romans 3.28, the context has already been established for us in verse 20. So we, we know that for sure. We know for sure that by verse 28, um, that Paul has already used it earlier in the passage, uh, in the chapter, and of course it's in verse 20. So, if, if as I maintain, works of law refers to this one coin with two sides, that is, uh, Jewish identity on one side and keeping Torah on the other side, and the two together, you need both of them to describe works of law as this Jewish policy, Jewish-only Torah. You need both of them. If that is what I maintain that works of law is describing, then, starting in verse 27, Paul says, Then what becomes of our boasting? Is It, it is excluded, that is, the boasting, is it, it is excluded. Notice, um, boasting in Paul here, as I pause and, and explain, boasting in this passage is seen by Paul as more or less a negative thing. What becomes of our boasting? We know this is true because in Romans 2, um, uh, let me pull it up here, in Romans 2 earlier, or a few weeks ago, we read that uh, boasting, uh, the Jewish people would boast in God and they would also boast in the law. And Paul seemed to be um, somewhat displeased at this boasting because the boasting was over and against Gentiles who didn't have Torah and who were not Jewish. And so, in essence, it's a bragging. It's broast, It's a bragging uh, of exclusivity. It's a bragging of of a uh, of privilege. It's a bragging of 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 their ethnicity. Um, it's it's a it's it's establishing a kind of a, a a social caste or class system. And Paul is going to frown upon that. Paul doesn't want Jewish people to boast in their Jewishness or to boast in their possession of Torah to the exclusion of the Gentiles. That's not what Paul wants. So when Paul says what becomes of our boasting, it is excluded. It's interesting that Paul says that it's excluded, but then he qualifies the exclusion. This is how we know the context. By what kind of law? What kind of law would exclude or would excuse the boasting? And Paul says it, by a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. So by the law of faith, boasting is excluded, right? That's the theology that he says. It is excluded by a law of faith. If we could just um, take out some of the phrases for a moment and read the passage that way. Verse 27, chapter 3, chapter three of Romans. Then what becomes a boasting question? It is excluded. This is his answer. It is excluded. And let's skip the second phrase for a moment. And then he says, by a law of faith. The last clause of the verse. This tells us then, what kind of law would include the boasting, right? If we know that the law of faith excludes the boasting, then what kind of law would include the boasting? Well, then it would be a law of works. Because he says so. He says, by a law of works? No. And then when he says no in that clause there, he says no, as in no, it is not excluded. 
This means that by a law of works, boasting is included. You see my point? So this is the boasting that Paul is upset about. The boasting of the law of ethnicity, the law of works. And works there must be within the context of the works that he already described in verse 20. For by the works of the law. That's the works that he's talking about. The works of the law. This Jewish ethnicity that is coupled together with Torah obedience. And the two together are the works. Shorthand for works of the law. So when Paul says works here, I believe he means works of the law. In fact, the New King James Version, if I'm correct, if I remember, actually has by the by a law of works of the law or something like that. It actually fills in the phrase works of the law again there. So let's keep reading. Verse 28, For we hold that one is justified, and there that phrase justified. Let me just jump over into the uh, interlinear. For those of you who are in the um, class with me, you'll see now that I've got the uh, Romans 3 passage pulled up with the interlinear so that we can see the Greek. And so in verse 28, this is reading woodenly now, We reckon therefore to be justified by faith a man apart from works of law. Logizomitha, I'm sorry, Logizomitha gar dikaiustai piste anthropon chorus ergonamu. So, to be justified, the verse, the word I want to highlight, which I'm pointing to right now with my little pointer, uh, Dikaiustai is the same word that we encountered, same word group that we encountered in our Galatians passage, Galatians chapter 5, around verse 4. You who would be justified by the law, Dikaiustai. Uh, dikai, I believe it's even the exact same word. Let me just take a look. Yep, uh, it's close. Dikaiustai is what we found in Galatians 5, 4. Dikaiustai. And now in Romans 3, verse 28, uh, we have dikaiustai, very, very uh, close. But the point you can see by hearing them, dikaiustai, dikaiustai, is that um, it's got that root word, dikai, in there, which is that forensic term again, it's that, it's that law term. It's Paul's way of saying basically forensically justified, but including behaviorally justified, righteous in God's sight. And so we reckon, therefore, that a person is made righteous or justified, by faith, piste anthropon, a man, chorus apart from ergonamu, works of the law. And I've got the Greek pulled up so that we can see that ergonamu is identical to the phrase that we already found uh, in that we've been studying for these last two months, works of the law, ergonamu. And then we keep reading. And and here's the here's the point I'm trying to make. Notice you've got to you've got to follow the flow of Paul's argument here. You've got to follow the flow. When he says in verse 29, or, A in the Greek, or, is God the God of the Jews only? I think the ESV has it that way. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Yes, that's how we have it in the, in the ESV. In the Greek, it's or of Jews is he the God only? A eudion ho theosmanon. And so now Paul's or there, the conjunction that's introducing verse 29, forms a type of a semi-conclusion to what he just said. And it's actually a, uh, a, a um, what we might call a, a shocking um, presupposition, a shocking statement. Is God the God of the Jews only? As Paul kind of uh, says in... in, in um, in uh, surprise, uh, 
and, and why would why would Paul even introduce the notion of God being the God of the Jews only? What does the logic behind the phrase God being the God of the Jews only have to do with being justified at all? That's the point I'm trying to make. That's the secret to understanding the context of the passage is that Paul says, or is God the God of the Jews only? In other words, the common, mistaken self-understanding of Jewishness in Paul's day was that Jewishness itself attracted the righteousness of God. And therefore, verse 28, when he says, uh, we reckon therefore to be justified apart from works of the law, Paul's saying, we reckon therefore to be ju- a man is justified apart from Jewish-only or Jewish-exclusive ethnicity, exclusive Jewish membership in Israel. Um, things like that, however you want to word that, uh, the works of the law, I see the context here is the God, the God of the Jews only. And there, so, I mean, there it is. You die on ho theos manon, or is God the God of the Jews only, Jewish only God. In other words, works of the law is this Jewish only concept. And Paul answers his own question, right? Is God the God of the Jews only? Isn't he also the God of the Gentiles? Uchi chai ethnon? The ethnon there is the Greek word for Gentiles. It's where we get our Greek word, it's where we get our English word ethnic or ethnicity. Is God the God of the Jews only? Paul's going to say no. No, he's not the God of the Jews only. In other words, God is not the God of the works of the law. And here the words works of law is a Jewish only Torah obedience. So God is not the God of the Jews only. The context here shows us that Paul is combating this mistaken Jewish only notion of not only God and his covenants, but of um, membership in Israel and Torah commandments, keeping the Torah. All of that had been basically, as I call it, hijacked by um, the ethnic Jews of Paul's day. Essentially, the Jewish people were doing a very bad thing by uh, exclusively... Uh, hoarding God and um, what do we say? Exclusively secluding God, prohibiting the Gentiles from from basically coming to God, ex- unless they came, they were squeezed, forced through this funnel uh, called um, proselyte conversion. So it was it was like this giant crowd of Gentiles who were um, almost like a stampede, rushing towards one tiny little opening in a wall in order to get into the um uh, uh in order to get to the other side of the wall and on the other side of the wall was uh covenant membership in Israel and this tiny little opening had a little heading on uh, over it and what was that heading Jewish only essentially that's what was going on in the first century all these gentiles were rushing in towards god and on the other side of the wall was god the covenants, the blessings, the promises, Torah obedience, uh, salvation, all of it, the spirit, everything was on the other side. Everything desirable in life, good and and favorable in life, was on the other side of this opening, on the other side of the wall. And yet, uh, the Jewish people had basically micromanaged the 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 immigration into this other side of the uh, this other compartment. They had micromanaged the. Um, the uh, membership into Israel by forcing Gentiles to become Jews first. So basically, we can finish out the chapter here by saying, is God the God of the Jews only? Paul's going to say no. He is also the God of the Gentiles. And that's why he says there, uh, uh, nai kai ethnon, yes, 
also of Gentiles. And then verse 30, since indeed one the God is who will justify the circumcision by faith, and the next verse, uh, uncircumcision through the same faith, or if I just read it in the ESV, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Notice in verse 30, Paul gives the answer to the, to the Jewish dilemma of, is God the God of the Jews only? In verse 29, is God the God of the Jews only? Is works of the law the way to be justified? Is a Jewish only Israel really the, the path towards justification? Is the Torah really only for Jews? Is the Torah a Jewish-only document? Do we have to become legally recognized Jews first before God will recognize our place within Israel? All of these are questions that Gentiles would have had in Paul's day. And so Paul's going to answer these questions. He's going to address these questions for his readers right here. Since God, in verse 30, since God is one, there's only one God, that's the Shema, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And that's why I brought that out in the uh, Shema teaching that I did probably about a month ago. Since God is one, who will what? Justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by faith. And this word justify right here in verse 30 has the same root as justified in verse 28. And we can prove it by uh, pulling up the Greek. Uh, to be justified in verse 28 and then in verse 30 since indeed one the God is who will justify uh, there that same word uh, you don't even have to know Greek to, to, to hear the first few uh, letters Dikai, the first five letters D-I-K-A-I is the same as up here in verse 28, D-I-K-A-I. So we got the same root word. In other words, Paul doesn't suddenly jump into some different concept, right? So um, God is the one who will justify the circumcised, who will make them righteous, make them a tzaddik. Remember the uh, Hebrew counterpart. He will make them a tzaddik, just like Papa Eger, Abraham was counted to him as righteousness, the phrase righteousness in, in that uh, passage is the same uh, root word here. God will justify the circumcised, that is to say the Jewish people, by faith. And the uncircumcised, remember these are metonyms, uh, the uncircumcised are the Gentiles here, through faith. So we have one standard, which is exactly what I've been describing from Moshe all the way to Shaul. One standard across the board, right? That's what I'm trying to teach. And then verse 31, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? Now, this is an interesting question, isn't it? If we are to follow from historic Christian theology, then Paul should be answering, yes, we do overthrow the law by faith. I mean, isn't that essentially the way the historic Christian position has taken the faith in Christ in relationship to the law of Moshe? In other words, it's law of Moshe versus law of Christ. At least that's how I uh, encounter it as I visit churches and read Christian commentaries. We're not we're no longer under the law because we're under grace. We no longer follow the law of Moses because we follow the law of Christ. We no longer walk after the law of Moses because we walk after the Spirit. This is the theology that's presented to me as your average Christian. And yet Paul says, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? 
if Christian theology is accurate, then Paul should say, yes, we do. We overthrow the law by faith. But that's not what Paul says. Paul says, by no means. In other words, using strongest language possible. Uh, let me pull up the Greek. Paul says, namon un katargumen dia pistios. Law then do we nullify through faith? And his answer is, me genoito. That's a very strong, may it never be in the uh, Greek, which corresponds to the Hebrew, halila, uh, I believe. But me genoito, namon histanomen. In other words, uh, I'm sorry, I forgot one word. Me genoito, Allah, namon histanomen. May it never be, but law we uphold. Or the ESV has we uphold. I think a few versions say we establish. So verse 31 essentially says, Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? Paul's going to say, No, no, we don't overthrow the law. By the contrary, we actually uphold the law. In other words, we don't even just passively say, Well, we've got faith, and there's the law, but we don't know what to do with it. Paul actually fills in uh, what our response should be. He tells us to actively, not passively, but to actively uphold the law. In other words, it's something that we establish in our communities. So that it is going to do it for my exegesis of Romans chapters 2 and 3, using works of the law as my test case. And I think what we'll do next week, uh, since we will be right in the middle of Passover, our liturgy is going to change next week. I think I'm going to read a passage out of the book of Exodus, probably around chapter 13 or something like that, as our liturgy. And then for our uh, um, New Testament uh, apostolic writings passage, I think I'll jump over into the uh, Galatians 2.16 or maybe Galatians 3.10-14. One of those two passages that actually uses the phrase works of law. Because we're going to actually start um, taking this phrase works of law, and we're actually going to take Galatians 2.16, and for the next few weeks and possibly months, we're going to exegete it. I hope it doesn't take that long, because if I just read my commentary, I think it's self-explanatory. So, let me dismiss in prayer, and for those of you who are in the live class, stay with me, and we'll entertain about 15 minutes or so of Q&A with the live class here. But for those of you who are listening to this commentary by way of internet or um, the iTunes podcast, um, let me close in prayer, and we'll meet next week. We will be meeting next week, even though we're, we will be in Passover week. Yes, we will have class next week, so join us out next week as well. Let's close in prayer. Abba, I bless your name, and I say thank you, Holy Spirit, for superintending the words of the uh, passage for us, for superintending the words of Paul for us to study, for keeping them safe so that we can read them and put them in our heart so that we can place them in our minds, so that we can be renewed by the washing of the water of the Word, so that, Lord, so that we can be healed as we uh, faithfully trust in your words and in your promises. Lord, you have demonstrated your intense love for us by sending your Son, Yeshua, the Messiah, of not only Jews, but of Gentiles. Lord, you have brought us both into the family. And now we, like Papa Abraham, can be declared righteous. We know, we know that by faith in Messiah, that we have been declared righteous in your sight. And so, Lord, Lord, strengthen us to establish and to confirm and to, as Paul says, uphold this law. We uphold Torah because of faith. Lord, help us to be found righteous in your sight, but to be found faithful as we avail ourselves of your words and of your ways. Lord, continue to draw us close to you. 
We want to be a witness. We don't want to let our light be hidden. What's the old song that we, um, the children's song that we sang in Sunday school? Hide it under a bushel. No, I'm going to let it shine. Lord, let us be bright, shining lights so that those around us will see the Master, will see Yeshua, will see Jesus in us. For indeed, we may be the only Jesus that some people encounter. So let us not be ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation both to the Jew as well as to the Gentile. Kind of paraphrase of uh, Romans chapter 1 there. Thank you, Lord, that you have healed us. Thank you, Lord, that you are drawing us close to yourself. Thank you that you are continuing to raise us up as people of the King, as children of the King, as representatives of your kingdom. Lord, we will go forward with your name, and we will be careful to give you the praise in all of these things. B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. <laughs>